Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. Oh, man, I... um... I'm a little overwhelmed, actually. It's um, so, I mean, seeing the worship team up here. Um, so we have Risa and Julia. Let's give a hand for them coming up here. <laughs> uh, fantastic job. And it, it, it blesses my heart. Like, it just, I mean, earlier in this week, you know, just hearing, uh, didn't know if Gabby was going to be here. She's not feeling well. Uh, Madison is not feeling well. You know, Hayden wasn't sure if he was going to be here. It's like, God, what are we going to do? <laughs> like, the, we, nobody here wants me leading worship. I mean, it's the thing we can all agree on. And yet, um, God is so faithful. And it's very overwhelming to me. And it blesses me to see his faithfulness in calling out people to, to lead in worship. This is something we've been talking about, something we've been praying about since I've been here. Lord, like, give us worship leaders. And just in the past few months, we've seen person after person with just this amazing skill, uh, use it to lead us into worship. And so that, I am encouraged, church. I hope you are encouraged to see people growing and serving in that way. Um, just so you know, it is not easy. <laughs> it is not an easy thing to come up here and do that. Thank you, Lord. So our our text today is going to be John 19, verse 17, uh, through the rest of chapter 20. And so the Gospel of John is, as we've seen, one of the most beautiful, um, challenging, oh my gosh, so challenging, and yet practical uh, books in all of Scripture. It is this story of this hero, Jesus, told uh, by arguably, or maybe not arguably, by Jesus' best friend and, and closest follower, which means that John has a very uh, uh, unique firsthand and intimate experience with Jesus, which is it's something we see usually when we watch movies and we, we, we watch movies about heroes, and there's always some sort of character that allows us to go into this fantastic world, some character that we can identify with, that's human, even in this amazing world, that, that gives us this sneak peek into what is happening. And, and quite frankly, it's, I, I've just, as I've read John over and over, I realize that that is how John functions. We have this incredible hero, the story of Jesus, and we have like the, I don't want to call him a sidekick, but I mean, John is that, that close follower, and he's giving us all this inside information. And he does that very purposefully, trying to convince us that Jesus is God, right? That he's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Uh, He's the hero whose life culminates in the hour of the hero, in the cross and the resurrection, an event that changes everything, an event that we're going to look at today in part three of of the hour of the hero. Now, having said that, if you've read ahead, if you've read through the book of John, there's this something very interesting that happens right here. We have this incredible event, the cross, the most magnificent, beautiful, glorious, horrific, all these things, events in, in 
the history of the galaxy and the history of humanity, the most important event in Jesus' life, as told by, by his best friend. And yet, John does not, John does not talk about it, like, hardly at all. It's so interesting. You can argue with me, there's maybe 21 verses that actually apply to the cross, which is unusual. There's only a couple of verses where John is, is talking about this important event. And so we have to pay attention to what he does say. And so there's this firsthand knowledge that John is giving us. And, and I, quite frankly, it, it's sort of a difficult passage because it doesn't seem like there's a connection. And John is just saying, oh, well, this happened, and this happened, and then this happened, and then this person told this person that, that person told that person you're like, what is he talking about? What is the point of all these seemingly uh, uh, disconnected elements and, and these conversations? What is, the, what is the point of all this? Even at the cross, it seems like what John is talking about is trivial. Right? Again, we're talking the cross. And John is talking about these things that are happening over here and over there. And so it's so important for us to follow John's arguments that he's trying to make with these things that, that he's talking about that are so important to him, even though we want to hear about what's happening at the cross, and he's telling us all these other things, why? And so we're going to follow his argument and his plea to believe in this hero, Jesus Christ. And again, today our sermon is called Hour of the Hero, Part 3, It is Finished. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, what a joyous passage to get to read over and over uh, this week. Um, this, this amazing um, hour of this hero, we have Jesus as he, as he takes on death itself. Um, allow us, Lord, our hearts and our minds to see um, why we should believe a story like this. Whether it's the prophecies that are completed, uh, the fact that this is firsthand knowledge, that, that only somebody who is at the foot of the cross could explain to us, Lord, and say, may we be convicted to not only believe, but to submit, Lord, and to follow Jesus and to be transformed by being a believer and follower of Jesus. And we do this all to your, your name and your glory, Lord. Amen. Let's start. We do a lot of reading today. In verses 16 through 22 of chapter 19. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but rather that this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. And so what we find here is the crucifixion. I just mentioned just passing in one verse. Oh, Jesus is crucified. And so what we have here, though, is Jesus versus death. Right? Jesus 
versus death. Again, John is here at the crucifixion. He's at the, the, the Golgotha, the place of the skull that is shaped like the skull. And he sees Jesus come by with the crossbeam of the cross. And I know if you've seen movies, it's a little, you know, dramatized Jesus carrying this cross, you know, this long distance. The truth is that he would be carrying the beam. He would only be carrying the beam of the cross. The vertical part of the cross would already be in the ground for multiple, multiple uses of that beam being put across it. Now again, John does not give the details that other gospel writers give about this event. And so again, the one thing he highlights here is that there's a sign put above Jesus. And it reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, in three different languages, right? And so everybody, everybody in that environment, soldier, Jew, scholar, Roman citizen, everybody can understand what it says. And this makes the priests mad. They are triggered. They are very upset at this. And they tell him, no, take that down. Take down that sign. That sign is not accurate. To which Pilate just says, well, it is what it is. I wrote this. Like, I'm the one who, who, who wrote that sign. And we don't know if that means he said what to write or if he wrote it with his own hand. We don't know. But it's worth exploring why did Pilate do that? Like, why put this sign? Why mention it? And so I think there's three reasons that this sign is put above Jesus. I, think, I actually think there's more than three reasons. But I want to look at three reasons, things that are happening with this sign above Jesus, three intents of the sign above Jesus. The first being, quite frankly, Pilate is way ahead of the curve. And so Pilate's a troll. And so I believe with all my heart that he is trying to trigger the Jews, which we've already seen, it's worked. And so he knows what he's doing, and so he's, he doesn't like them. He, they woke him up early. He hasn't had his coffee. We don't know if he was working that day. They've woken him up, got him out of bed. He's annoyed, and if he's going to submit to their request, he's going to do it his way. He's going to get the last laugh in this moment. Secondly, I also believe at the same time that Pilate believes that Jesus is a king or at least somebody very important, whether that's a spiritual leader, some sort of leader. And I believe that because we, we read about the interaction last week. And Jesus, he doesn't talk down to Pilate, but he gets in his face. It's like, yeah, I'm a king too. I have this kingdom you can't even see. And he tells Pilate, your authority, that's under God's authority. You don't have any authority. And you'd expect Pilate to be very upset, knowing what we know about Pilate and his short temper and that he's not cool. And yet we saw repeatedly last week that Pilate says three times, like, I don't have any problem with Jesus. <laughs> like, what are you guys yelling about? He, he, he's totally cool. He's fine. In fact, Pilate tries to save Jesus numerous times, even by beating him to the point that the mob would feel pity on him and just leave him alone. And so I believe that Pilate does believe that part of that sign is him acknowledging, like, this, this probably was, was their king. And third, that God uses Pilate to judge the Jews. Again, it's already been established that God is in control. Anything Pilate does, Jesus has already told him, his authority is from God. So whether God inspired him or God allowed him, I believe with this sign, it's also a judgment on the Jews. They can't run away from the fact what they just did. 
Changing the sign and adding a couple words doesn't change what they just did. Not only are they going to know what they did, everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to know that this was the king of the Jews. And while Jesus is on the cross, from here, John highlights five things. Five things. Four for them are, are things he doesn't want us to miss. These, these specific things that he notices, and then one of them is a personal instruction. And so the first of those can't miss observations is the dividing of Jesus' garments, which we read in verses 23 and 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven of one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let, what, said to one another let's not tear this, but cast lots for, lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so you may not think about this, or maybe this triggers you. This is one of the most difficult aspects of the cross for people to deal with. I, I have seen people, like, cover their ears as we talk about this, like, la, 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 like, I can't hear this part. This part can't be true. And that is the fact that Jesus is stripped. Right? So Jesus is stripped here. We can't get around that fact. There's nothing to lead us to believe, like all the great artists have, have painted throughout history, that there's a magic piece of cloth that clings to Jesus. It says stripped. I mean, there's, there's no... And also, that is the way that the punishment took place. It was common in Rome, really not just Rome, but for your defeated enemies, like what shows an enemy is defeated more than marching them through your city naked? No armor, no flags, no dignity, defeated. And so Jesus, it says, is stripped here. His clothes were removed, and there was enough for each of the four soldiers, but there's this really one nice piece of clothing, this tunic, and I don't know what that looks like or means other than it has to be a big deal because they're like, well, we can't, let's not tear it. Let's not ruin it. Let's just, let, let's just bet on it to see who can get it. And again, okay, what's the point of explaining this? Jesus is on the cross, and you're talking about these soldiers over here who are dividing his clothes? Like, tell us what Jesus is saying. But no, he's talking about the garments here to show that it fulfills Scripture. And he's talking about Psalm 22, 18, where prophetically David wrote, they divide my garment among them, my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so this is one of those things that's argued. It's argued in our culture and academia. All these hundreds of things that, that, that happened in Jesus that are fulfillment of prophecy. Right? All these details that seem impossible that they would possibly happen and so one of the best, argue, not best, one of the, the biggest, sorry, arguments against this is, well, people knew the prophecies, so they did the prophecies, right? And so, but why would Jewish soldiers do that? Why, why would Jewish soldiers, soldiers know Jewish scripture? And if they had any idea what they were doing, I truly believe 
they would be more concerned about killing God than they would be about casting lots for garments. I don't think they had any idea what they're doing. I think John is just showing us little details. You know, maybe John didn't even want to look at, at, at the cross, at what was happening there, just noticing everything that's happening in that moment. But it was so important. And then we get into this personal instruction. This one personal instruction to John in verses 25 through 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his home. Now this is interesting. I, I do believe, as I read the Greek, that this happened simultaneously. Like, I believe that John, and I do believe this is John. I won't get into an hour lecture about why I think the beloved disciple is John. I believe that. You know. And yes, I mean, there's some issues with why you would call yourself the beloved one, but, but he was. And so we want to trust him. <clears throat> but as John is watching these troops gamble, and he's frustrated, and he's just like annoyed by these troops off to the side who are gambling away Jesus' garments, I believe Jesus gets his attention. And again, I do see that in the Greek where it says, while, while this was happening, while these people were doing this stuff, Jesus speaks to John. Which leads me to believe, just like it says, all these Marys that are there at the cross, like at least three Marys are by the cross, I believe John is right there. I believe John is able to hear because he's near. The, I don't think Jesus is yelling like Mel Gibson, right? <laughs> like in the movies, yelling out. I think Jesus can barely breathe, and so he's just, just barely getting words out. And yet he addresses John, and he addresses his mother, Mary. Now, I can't begin. I, I always struggle with this. What it would feel like for a parent to see their, their child as a young, you know, handsome adult, you know, 33, right? What it would look like to watch them, you know, be beaten or, or see the effects of being beaten, nailed to a cross and stripped naked. How difficult must that be? A perfect son, no less. Like, not just a kid, like the best. I mean, the, you know, when we love our kids with our perfections, we're talking about the perfect son being stripped and, and nailed to a cross. I don't believe in this moment that she is thinking about, oh, I wonder about like my future, I wonder who's going to take care of me. No, I think she's like turning inside out. She's beside herself at having to watch this happen, and yet she doesn't leave his side, no matter how difficult it would be to watch that. She's there by Jesus' side. But Jesus is thinking about her future. Because Jesus is not only the hero, he's a great son. Right? He's the son of God, but also the son of Mary. I mean, Mary, I, I think I may have mentioned it before. Like, I, I think, Mary, that we do not give her enough credit. Right? And I know why, because, well, we don't want to become Mary worshipers, right? There's religions where Mary is worshipped, and we don't want to do that. 
But Mary was probably 12, 13, maybe 14, right, when she gets this job, <laughs> you know, when she gets uh, the Holy Spirit comes over her and she has conception. And so this incredibly difficult and important task that she does extremely well. And so while we don't worship her, I will always say when we get to heaven, we high-five Mary, right? We don't have to worship or pray to her, but high-five, good side hug, yes, she did a very important thing. And Jesus knows this, and so Jesus tasks John with now taking care of her, uh, which he does. And again, that's what, help, that's what helps me lead to believe that, again, this is John, right? This is John speaking, and this also speaks to the intimacy between Jesus and John. Like, you don't just ask somebody passing by on the street to take care of your mom, right? Just the person who you absolutely trust. And then, again, we, we skip very, very quickly to the death of Jesus. No more details. And so in verses 28 to 30, we find this, this other can't-miss observation. This was something that he did want to talk about where it's Jesus drinks sour wine. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed down his head and gave up his spirit. Now, we will come back to those words, it is finished. Like, those are the, the glorious words, right? Really the catchphrase of this hero. I mean, this, this is the trademark. We'll come back to that. I want to finish looking at the three things that John wants us to look at, including the fact that, that Jesus says, I thirst to fulfill prophecy. Now, it's interesting in that arrangement of the words again in the Greek, just to bore you guys to nerd out, while... There is this prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. And so Psalm 26, uh, I'm sorry, 69, 21 says, they gave me food, uh, poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And so John is seeming to think like, John says, well, knowing, like Jesus says, I thirst to fulfill this prophecy. The prophecy isn't to say I thirst, the prophecy is to drink. And so it just makes you think like Jesus knows like, every single little detail of everything that's going around him. And there's another box that needs to be checked, right? And so, I thirst. I thirst. Give me something to drink, right? And, and so we see that fulfilled here. Now, who of you, if you were thirsty, you were thirsty, it's, you were in Bakersfield, it's extremely hot, I get exhausted walking to check my mail. If you were thirsty, what do you ask for? Do any of us ask for sour wine? Right? No. No. So none of us ask for sour wine. So what, what is up with this? Well, it's an insult. It's an insult. Mark my words. This is King Jesus. Now, kings, what do kings get? Kings get the best wine. Like the, like the wine that Jesus made in Cana right? Like the best wine. And so by giving him sour wine, this is another insult. You know, wine for King Jesus. Horrible, sour tasting wine. Very much on purpose. 
And then he goes on from there. In verses 31 through 35, John gives us the two last can't-miss observations. Number three being no broken bones, and number four being that his side is pierced. And so starting in verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they may be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And so what interesting language. It's hard. I don't know if that's even a proper translation. I guess it is. Like he's saying like, you have to, have to believe me. Like I was there. I am telling the truth. There was nobody closer to this situation. Because of that, like you just have to believe me, guys. What other proof can I give other than like he was probably literally covered in blood and water. He was there. He saw these things happen. It is not secondhand. Therefore, you must believe him. John even does some more uh, cross-references for us. He does some legwork for us in pointing out that this is to fulfill Psalm 3420 and Zechariah 1210. So why does John point out these things? Because John wants us to know that, that, you know, since the beginning, that Jesus is God, right? Jesus is God. And even when he's dying and when he's dead, things are still being, the, the prophecies are being fulfilled, right? Even after Jesus dies, his legs, you know, his bones aren't broken, right? His side is pierced. All these details are happening. And John wants you to know that this is prophetic, that Jesus is God, And going back to those last moments where Jesus is on the cross, and he is facing death, and quite frankly, if we're keeping score at this point, death wins, right? Death defeats Jesus here. And right before that, Jesus says some amazing, beautiful, and glorious words. In verse 30, he says, it is finished. It is finished. I think those are the most awesome words in scripture it is finished those those are that that is jesus the hero proclaiming that he did the work he came to do right he came to save people and he and he saved them it's the cry of the lamb who has taken away the sin of the world right this is a person who is saying like the rescue mission is complete it is finished it is finished i i think just those words alone we could preach a year on those words, what that, what's, what that means, that it is finished. One of my favorite Greek words, tetelestai, tetelestai. And again, you know, I'm not bringing out the Greek guy unless it's really, it's really interesting. But if you're going to know a Greek word, tetelestai. You know, you may even be one of those people who now you're going to realize that a lot of people have it tattooed on their arm. 
I'm not saying to do that, but that's how serious this is. Like, it is finished. And so this word has two meanings in this culture, and I think John knows that, that both of them apply, and so he very much is quoting Jesus in a way that, with this word that lets you know what Jesus is saying here. The first is that the goal is accomplished. The end game is finished. What needed to be done was done. It is finished literally means it is finished. Redemption. Now what we can't miss in these words, it is finished, is what is finished. It is finished doesn't mean the cross is finished. It doesn't mean just, oh, this hour is finished. When he says it is finished, it is his whole life. It is finished as he finished a perfect, righteous life for us. His whole life for us is finished. It is finished. This is accepted from God. His sacrifice on our behalf has now been accepted because it is finished, right? It doesn't say there was another sacrifice required. It is finished. It also means that the judgment of our sin is finished, that Jesus on the cross suffered for us completely. Our, our judgment of our sin and our suffering was finished in that moment. And I mention that specifically because there is, there is a lot of people who would say, speculate, well, what happened to Jesus in the three days between dying on the cross and being resurrected from the grave? And some people would say, well, he went and, and, and he went to hell. And he suffered because he had to suffer for us. I understand that logically. But what it says here is it is finished. So for Jesus, hell was on the cross. And we know from other gospels, hell was Jesus saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Hell was on the cross. Jesus doesn't have to go to hell for three days to pay anything. It is finished means it is finished. The other meaning of tetelestai, which, which I believe applies here very specifically, is that this term is a marketplace term. Right? This is a slangy term that you can use when you're going to buy something. So if you saw that tetelestai stamped on something, it means that it is paid in full. If you bought something in the marketplace and you paid for it, your receipt is marked. It is finished. It is paid in full. And so, paid in full, what that means is that's our receipt, right? Paid in full, which means that transaction is complete because, again, it is finished. And so, on the cross, if we believe in Jesus, the judgment of our sin, the penalty of our sin, all, everything that the wrath that our sin accumulated and stored up has been paid for completely by Jesus in that moment. When he says it is finished, it is paid in full. When we stand before God on Judgment Day, we have that stamp on us. How amazing is that? The question is, is it finished for you? Is it finished for you? And I'm asking everybody here. And so even younger people, as I, I was you at one time, and you're trying to figure out your faith, you're trying to figure out if you believe what your parents believe here, this is a question that you need to ask yourself because I believe that you understand what I'm talking about. It says in Romans 2, 5, Paul writes, but, 
Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so our sin will be judged by a righteous God. Now in those words, it is finished. That is righteous judgment number one. That is a righteous judgment. And if you believe in Jesus, you follow Jesus, you have faith that you believe Jesus when he says it's done, there's nothing about you that would fear death. Like, it's finished. It is finished. But if, if you not, then you have to ask yourself, like, the second judgment is now coming. Your sin is judged at the cross when it's finished, or it's judged at the finish line. You need a stamp on your sin that says paid in full. Now after Jesus spoke these words, it is finished, he died. The sacrificial lamb sacrificed. Now, the death of Jesus is not the end of the hero's journey, right? It's not the end of the hero's story. What we find in these words, it is finished, as we read on, is it's just begun. Like, things are just getting started. So it is finished means it begins. And so just look, and I, I think that there's, as we go through this again, it just seems like why, John, why are you just mentioning these conversations that are taking place? Why are you mentioning the, these events? How do they, what's important about them? And I think we would take for granted a lot of what we're about to read. But this is where they start, right? What's normal for us starts right here. And so it begins with the burial of fear and the burial of Jesus in verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had been laid in. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And so Jesus hasn't even been resurrected yet. Right? The, the, the cross just happened. Jesus has just died, and yet everything is now changing. This is where everything changes already. These disciples, these secret disciples, didn't want anybody to know that they believed or followed in Jesus are now coming out. You know? And it says, yes, that Joseph comes to Pilate in secret to get the body of Jesus. Do you not think the Jews are going to find out that it was him? Yes. And so... He is now willing to risk that. And so he gets the body of Jesus. Now, who joins Joseph? 
Nicodemus, that guy? You guys remember Nicodemus months ago? Like Nicodemus, the guy who can only talk like at midnight in a back alley and didn't even know what he was talking about, Nicodemus? So he's been on this journey since chapter 3, right? We haven't heard about him, but he's been on a journey where he's now taking the body of Jesus and bringing all just incredible amounts of stuff to prepare Jesus for his burial. And so it begins, the followers of Jesus are now becoming bold. Again, even before he's been resurrected, they're coming out. What we have also is death defeated. So Jesus versus death, and now we know death is defeated. Starting in chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And in verses 6 and 7, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And so the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Exciting? Church? Amen? The tomb is empty? Amen. Okay, well, if we can celebrate when our team wins a baseball game, we can celebrate when a tomb is empty, right? Especially when it's ours as well. The tomb is empty. So Jesus goes through all these obstacles on his journey, going through, through the garden, going and talk, having these conversations with soldiers, priests, king, goes, faces death, dies, and then he conquers death. Now, I love the details here. I mean, again, it's those details John is showing us, as John has said it repeatedly to us, dude, I was there. And so details about what's in the tomb, that's very important. But I love how Jesus comes out of this altercation with death. And so Jesus doesn't come out of this altercation with death like in a movie where somebody crawls out of the grave and they're covered in blood and mud, right? And so what we see from the details is it, we don't see the actual picture. John doesn't see Jesus come back, but we have the details. And I just see Jesus just being like, death? Like, oh, well, death, why don't you uh, hold my uh, face cloth? There you go. You can have that. I'm about to bust out of here. I'm about to just move this stone that's plugging my grave. And so Jesus defeats death and walks out of the grave like a hero, carrying with him the hope of eternity for all of us. Now, speaking of this hope in the resurrection of Jesus, what we find here is the gospel is believed for the first time. The gospel believed. In verse 8, Then the other disciple, I believe that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed. And so that's key, that he believed. And so the women get to the tomb first. Don't want to undersell that. The women were there. Good on them. They were there first. But they're looking for the body of Jesus. They're not looking for Jesus. Peter gets in there. You could say the same thing. Peter's just trying to evaluate what is happening. And as it says in verse 9, like, they don't have any framework 
The disciples aren't going to the tomb to find the risen Christ. They don't even know that's an option, or they don't realize yet that it's even an option, so they're just showing up. So what it says here that John believes is John's the first person to believe that Jesus has been resurrected, which we take for granted, but John was the first person to realize Jesus rose from the dead. And you can imagine, I, I don't know, I'm the kind of guy who likes to imagine scenarios like this where everybody's crying, you know, I don't know what Peter's doing, but John just surveying the scene. Okay, the door's open, there's a pile of clothes, there's a face cloth that's folded, cloth, door, clothes, and at some point, it clicks. At some point, he realizes, oh my gosh, no way. He raised himself from the dead. That is the only explanation. That is so Jesus. Like, that's the Jesus I've been following. And so we find here, and again, it's so very subtle, is we have the first person believe in the resurrection, and that's huge. Everything is changing. Disciples coming out of hiding, a death being conquered, the gospel being believed. And then we see that the sheep start to hear Jesus' voice. In verses 11 through 16, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, <clears throat> and she wept. And she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said to this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she still didn't know it was Jesus. So Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Um, I don't know how disrespected Jesus was there. Um, but she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. And so now we have, what well, we already knew, that the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd, right? And so again, her framework, her mindset, and you can't blame her for not recognizing Jesus. It's not like, well, what was wrong with her? Well, it's not in her mindset. So even if this person, gardener, looked like Jesus, her, her default belief isn't that it's Jesus. So we're not going to falter on that. But when she hears his voice, the sheep hears the voice of the shepherd, and she knows immediately this is Jesus. Now, of course, this, this encounter is huge. Not only is it Jesus revealing himself to someone for the first time, but we can't get around the fact that it's to a woman. Right? So this is not something you're supposed to do. And we talk about the chief priest being upset if they found out about this. Women aren't characters and main characters in the story. Women don't get anything done first. They don't show up first. They don't get the first conversation to this insider information. 
As I mentioned a few months ago, priests weren't even allowed to talk to women. We've come a long way, right? This is, this is so foreign to us. And it was interesting, yesterday, I should have wrote down his name, I, I was reading this short blog by, a, by an atheist, like a modern atheist who, who was blogging about the great events in human history, and he said the greatest event in human history, the thing that propels humanity was Christianity's treatment of women, right? A guy who does not believe in God can care less about Jesus. He said the way Christians treat women, the way Jesus redefined like how women could relate in religion and serve and be respected completely changes everything and made our world a better place. And again, I believe that. Everything has changed. We take it for granted that this was not so at one time. Ladies, at some point, the guys would be in here and you would be outside. Praise God, that is, that is not what Jesus wanted. And what we find in this conversation also is that we have a new family. A new family is introduced. Again, so subtle. In verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, she's clingy apparently, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And praise God that he makes a distinction there. And so if we've been going through John together, we know every time Jesus talks about the Father, loves the Father, but what does he always modify it with when he's talking about the Father? My. I'm going to my Father. I'm going back to my Father's house. My Father sent me. Always his Father. And now, after the cross, after the resurrection, he makes sure and tells her, tell my brothers. Tell my brothers. And this is huge. He's not saying bruh or bro, not like we're cool He's saying, brothers, we are family. And just to make sure, he says, my father and your father, our father. And so everything is changing. We are now part of the family of God through what was finished at the cross is, well, part of that was we are now in this family. We are genuinely related. If you believe in Jesus Christ, we are related, you know, for better, for worse, right? But we are related. I'm excited about that. And we never take that for granted. And from there, again, just uh, John shoots off to where Jesus goes to show himself to the disciples that evening after he showed himself to the woman. In verses 19 and 21, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples were glad, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to, get to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So two things to notice here. The first thing is that Jesus offers us his peace. All right, we've heard that before. Right? I mean, back in... Uh, Chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus told them before he, he was on his way to the cross, peace I leave with you and peace I give to you. 
Okay, so he gave them peace. And notice he says it twice just to verify it's him. Just, okay, double, double peace here. The interesting thing about that is that he leaves them with peace to go obtain peace. And so he goes to the cross to attain the ultimate peace. So even in those words that he says, like, my peace I give to you, the peace he's giving now is completely different. What he is giving them right before he charges them and puts them on mission is peace with God. Like, it is finished means the war with God is over. Right? The, the, the anger, the hostility between us and God and the guilt between us and God is finished. And so Jesus went to the cross and obtained this peace with God. And so when, when Jesus offers them peace, he's giving them just the best, most complete, absolute peace that could be offered. And I think they need it and we need it because Jesus sends us on mission. And so we have the sending just as Jesus was sent into the world by the Father to live that perfect life and to die that sacrificial death and, and, and rise from the grave, we are sent into the world. Now, Jesus says that we are sent into the world like he was sent into the world. And I think there's a distinction to be made. He doesn't say, go exist. I, I send you to exist into the world, right? But no, we're on mission. We are to go like Jesus was. And so Jesus was on mission. Now, Matt Carter, I think, um, says this correctly about this mission, about Christians. Too many Christians shout advice to drowning men from the safety of the shore. But that's not what Jesus did. He dove in and swam out to rescue us. And so we are sent into the world with the peace of God, with peace with God, right? To bring peace between man and God. But we are sent into the world like Jesus, meaning we're going to get some bumps and bruises, right? We're going to be insulted. We may even die for what we believe. But that's what we've been sent to do, to speak about God and God's glory and his mercy and his power to this world. Now, speaking of God, one more change happens when Jesus encounters Thomas. Besides the birth, I guess, of apologetics, you could argue. But in verses 27 through 29, Jesus then said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And so did you catch it? This, 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 transaction that take, this transition that takes place here? Something else that begins in this conversation that we could trace our faith back to. Thomas is the first person to call Jesus God. And so all these things have happened. And it's, it seems like, why is John talking about all these random events? But all, all these changes are happening. People believe in the resurrection. People are calling on Jesus as God. 
Now, at the end of chapter 20, in verses 30 and 31, John summarizes the book, which don't let it throw you off. We have another chapter next week, but he's already going to summarize the book of John. And he says here, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's whole argument of this book is the divinity of Jesus. Even, even down to this week and just little details, everything from the beginning of John 1, that Jesus is eternal, is God, came in the flesh. Everything that John is pointing to is that Jesus is God so that you believe that he is the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Now, I mentioned at the start, John does not spend a lot of time talking about the cross. Not as much time as you would have thought that we'd be spending at the cross. But for John, the cross is the exclamation point. The cross and the empty tomb is just the exclamation point at the end of his argument that, look, all this was true. Everything I said, when Jesus died and was resurrected, that's the exclamation point that every other thing I said was true about Jesus. And that exclamation point just leads to a question mark. And that is, do we believe? That's the whole point of this story. The application, I mean, there's a lot of application in John, but the application, the intent of John, his thesis is, apply this by believing it. Believing it is what you are supposed to do with this book. And with that, believing everything that John has told us about Jesus, which is an insane and wonderful amount of stuff about Jesus. And so do you believe that Jesus was God? Do you believe he died for your sins? And some people would say yes to that, but then also do you believe that it is finished? Do you believe it is finished? Or are you still trying to do something? There's something about you that's still trying to do something to add to that cross. Do you believe that Jesus defeated death and now offers you life? Something he can do because he has defeated death itself. And pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.